Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Social, cultural, and technological change is all around us. We live in an era of upheaval, not unlike the movement from an agrarian to a manufacturing economy that took place 100 plus years ago. At the time, many thought it was, to borrow a phrase, the end of history. Many spoke about the evils of cities, that leaving the farm was anti-American, that it went against the Jeffersonian ideal. It produced anger, sometimes violence, labor strife, and in the end, a whole new economy. An economy that some long for today. And today we are making another dramatic shift. A shift that some argue is only in its infancy, as information, AI, crypto, virtual reality, and whole new ways of looking at the world change the landscape of just about everything. Arguably ground zero for this remarkable change is San Francisco and the Silicon Valley. Ground zero in a time of monumental change is never an easy place to be, and certainly it is having its impact on a city that once saw itself as a bastion of manners and old wealth, and then in the 50s and 60s as the center of cultural revolution. Today, it's the center of another kind of inevitable and inexorable change, and many people are having a hard time dealing with that. We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Carrie McClelland. Carrie McClelland is a writer, filmmaker, lawyer, and rights advocate whose work has taken him around the world. He's just written Silicon City, San Francisco, and the Long Shadow of the Valley, and it is my pleasure to welcome Carrie McClelland here to the program. Carrie, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about what got you started on this project. I I arrived in the middle of what was clearly... um, a, a momentous wave of change. Uh, it was around 2012, 2013. There was that huge boom of evictions. Um, and you could feel the fact that San Francisco and San, and San Jose and, and the Bay Area in general was becoming this incredibly wealthy area. I think those two cities, the wealthiest in the nation and yet the most unequal. And so there was a sort of obvious right story to talk about, an obvious right story that I, I think begins at evictions and homelessness and, and extends into all the other collateral questions that sort of interact with it, including schooling and education and um, healthcare and the criminal justice sector. Um, All of those were sort of swirling together um, at a time I was at graduate school, sort of looking at the Bay Area as, as a space of policy questions. So that was sort of question A, how can I be a documentary filmmaker here? How can I document what's going on and be useful? And then um, moment B was I, I met my wife, who's a Bay Area native, um, and we settled down here and, and started to build our life here. Um, and her whole community here um, partnered with the fact that, frankly, my, my parents met in Northern California. Their, their grandparents met in Northern California. My family has been rooted here for a long period of time. This was sort of a place of family and human stories. Um, and the ways in which we, we often talk about demographic change or statistical change um, occludes our ability to really understand how, just how it feels viscerally and what it's like for a family to deal with a sick child while also trying to um, invest civically in their city in some ways or, or go to work or get up every morning. So that was, that was the story I wanted to tell, and it included trying to sort of disaggregate an idea that there was a sort of tech sector and a non-tech sector and just understand that there were... Uh, a range of stories in a, in a rich tapestry that all sort of reflected and interacted with each other and were interconnected. Um, and that to really try to understand this moment, both document it and understand it to be able to do something about it, um, we needed to be able to get a uh, more 360-degree perspective on um, who's in our community and what it means um, to call ourselves one, one city or one region or one um, 
community, essentially. And, and in the context of trying to examine that, to what extent did you put it in a historical context with respect to perhaps other places and other cities that had experienced this kind of upheaval, this kind of gentrification, this kind of change in different eras at different times and, and that had gone through similar kinds of things? Yeah, it, it, that's a great question. I mean, it, it, interestingly, at the time, I was I was actually taking a class called Cities in Distress. Um, and a lot of that class was looking at um, the, the Great Recession and the sort of wave of municipal bankruptcies that had occurred at the time and just general historical trends around white flight and the fact that cities across America, many of them like Detroit, uh, nearby Stockton, even um, Vallejo, had become places where the you know white, white communities or wealthy communities fled the cities to be able to leave them as places under-resourced um, and struggling. The opposite was occurring. Meanwhile, I'm living down in Soma. The opposite was occurring there. And so I felt there was a real need to sort of tell a different kind of story about a phenomenology that's happening um, in other kinds of cities in America in the wake of that, ones that have thriving um, business sectors. I think what's happening in San Francisco is clearly amplified by the fact that there's a huge amount of investment income that's come in after the Great Recession that just doesn't know where else to go. And so there's so much activity here and so much activity in the tech sector in a way that is really um, unrepresented elsewhere in the country. Um, but you see finance doing similar things in New York. You see the entertainment industry doing similar things in L.A. You see the, the whole host of sort of lobbying activities around D.C. Um, doing something similar there. So I think there are stories in America that are very similar to this. But if you look at the demographic change, there's a study that just came out from Berkeley a, a week or two ago that sort of looked at the impact of demographic change from displacement due to rents and evictions. Much of that falling disproportionately on communities of color, that same story can be told about New York. It just took 30 years to accomplish what in the Bay Area is doing in five or 10. So. One of the other interesting things that, that's happening with respect to San Francisco and Silicon Valley is something that runs counter to what we've seen in so many other places where you see flight out to the suburbs and then people working in the cities and and commuting and, and dealing with that reality. Whereas in San Francisco, we are seeing this odd phenomenon of people working out in the suburbs of Silicon Valley and then living and commuting back to the city. There, there's something counterintuitive, historically counterintuitive mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I think what, what's happening here, uh, culture has more to explain for that than, than anything else. And I think it's, it's two cultural forces. One is um, San Francisco has always symbolically represented something quite uh, beautiful and remarkable in the country. Um, and genuinely inside of itself has a, a diverse and dynamic um, set of things to enjoy as a citizen there. Some of that is, is arts and culture. Some of that is the energy of being in the city. Some of that is the energy of being in a place that's sort of like welcoming um, in the ways that San Francisco has, you know, for the past half of the last century often been. The other thing that's going on is cultural change inside the tech sector. So I, I, much of this sort of kit can be tracked with the arrival of the smartphone and the fact that um, tech became a kind of design project in addition to being a sort of hardware software project. So there are a lot of people coming into tech who have careers that previously um, would have been in marketing or would have been in advertising or would have been in the arts. And they're finding their voice inside tech 
you know, programmers and engineers and any number of other people were, were predominantly the sort of community and the professional class before. And now there's this sort of other layer of persons and they want to live in cities. They want to live in a place where there's nice places to go at night for dinner and things to do in the evenings um, and their friends. And so that, that particular shift, I think, has meant that there's this sort of reverse commute going on now, making cities attractive places for certain kinds of people who have enough money and are young enough to enjoy it. The weakness of the tech sector sort of application of that is that it really, though it's been asking itself the question more and more, hasn't been doing a good job of hiring a diverse pool um, of technical or non-technical staff. So it's a real challenge to sort of watch a predominantly male, a predominantly white um, employment class come into the city, arrive for jobs that jobs that are being created here, but aren't being created for the San Franciscans that are here. And those opportunities as a result often have the effect of displacing people who put down roots here, had families here and are entitled to feel some level of stability and dignity around the, the investment they made in the city. Talk about that sense of entitlement. Talk about what that means as you see it. Yeah. I mean, entitlement's a dangerous word right now. Right. So, I might recharacterize it as a sort of um, common sense of dignity we all um, both need. And, you know, lawyer Kerry will now say that is also protected <laughs> by law in, in many senses. But, you know, we have um, you, your introduction, I think, did a nice job of teeing up the idea that there have been several phases in U.S. history where this kind of seismic change has arrived. One of the things that's happening right now is like in the industrial revolution, the notion of work, the idea of labor, any number of other things um, rooted in how one built a subsistence for their own life and their own family, that's all changing. And it took us 80, 90 years to build a sort of suite of protections for people um, who were in the workforce that you know caps on uh, numbers of hours of work, overtime, benefits, um, disability protections, um, insurance protections, any number of these other things. Those things are being not just quietly, just immediately um, eroded by the gig economy um, and by a number of other ways in which um, technology is just asking for different kinds of careers to be built, few of which have the same you know, decades-long longevity that maybe my parents um, and the generation before me asked for. And so the impact on that is one to sort of take away a certain layer of stability and protection, particularly for a, a sector of the population economically. And the other thing is to sort of change those people who are most benefited by this change, those people who are in earning tech salaries or finance salaries or any number of other things for the professional class in the city, they're looking at their careers more in a series of two to four year chunks um, a job, a job, a job, a job, a job that they string together. And that means that their investment in the city and in the community is just very different than it was before. They, they are just inherently and structurally more transient. Um, and it's a challenge, especially at a time when the t technology itself is sort of making arguments that you can find your community online, you can build um, a, set, a series of sort of like like-minded niche spaces for yourself on Twitter and Facebook and that you can surf sort of above your physical community um, by building an infrastructure for yourself of Uber cars and any number of other um, services. You don't, it's very difficult, I think, to say that we have the same idea about what a city means, what a neighborhood means, what a community means, and what our responsibilities to one another are. 
I think the question of the book is how, how do we want to redraw those terms? How do we want to say, I am responsible to the, you know, d- dignity and comfort of people near me and in my neighborhood or people who live above me and below me or people who live across town from me. And that was, I think, a question that as somebody who's always grown up in cities, I felt like I understood 10, 15 years ago in ways that even I, even I after doing this book, am not quite sure what the right lines to draw are now. The book is a hope to, to offer any number of perspectives on that question um, and try to surface an ability for us to see that everybody identifies the problem and are, are proposing very different solutions to it. How much of this is as a result of it? How much of these changes and these ideas, and, and maybe this is something that is different from, from other situations historically, is that there is such a, a sense of generational change as a result of this, that the city has become, as you mentioned before, so much younger. And so you're bringing in really different attitudes, g- generational attitudes as well. Yeah, I think that's prescient. I mean, they're, they're, one of the things that I think tracks through the book is those people who speak to an experience of having come to the city in the 60s and 70s or come to the cities during the 80s and 90s and identify with perhaps, you know, the early days of technology and its psychedelic roots, or identify with, you know, a city forged through a series of crises, whether that's the AIDS crisis and a community sort of bonded through um, enduring and and emerging from that, uh, and the LGBTQ community that's very strong here still represents... um, you know, one of the many hearts of the city in that respect. I think you could you could say the same for um, those who experienced the Great Migration from the South. And, you know, San Francisco became part of the heart of the Black middle class. There's a sort of mourning for um, uh, a San Francisco they identified with as a place of refuge from elsewhere in the country, um, elsewhere in the world for some people. Uh, families who fled Latin American civil wars and came here and built their lives in and around the mission. So I think that change is, um, can be argued as generational, but it's also sort of familial, familial and demographic when you get to that. You know, there's the black population in the city has, has dropped from 14% to 3% in a handful of years. Um, uh, you know, clearly the mission has transformed into uh, no longer a Latino community, uh, predominantly, and now it shares, it's, it's sort of one of the hearts of hipster tectum. I think those things are, are in part generational, but in part demographic and familial. I mean, if you have families that are uprooting themselves, um, there's a story in the book of uh, a young man whose grandmother um, bequeathed the family home in Bernal Heights. Um, to one of his relatives who uh, immediately began eviction proceedings on everybody else in the home because there was an opportunity to convert that um, home into apartments. Um, that's a family being torn apart because of a rapid boom in the real estate market um, and an opportunity um, that some people saw there. It's, it's certainly mapping itself onto families in complicated and unique ways. And I think we could be reductive about trying to say it's generational or it's demographic or it's any number of things. But I think one thing that's important is that we 
read these stories and relate to the individuals and begin to understand that how the how this is iterating itself from family to family, individual to individual, community to community, is more complicated and surprising than we may expect. The other aspect of it is that it, two two parts really. One that it is all happening in a boom economy, and it's unclear how this would play out or what would happen if things turn sour for any reason. Because there are psych, there are boom and bust cycles, and we've seen them before. Yes. I think one of the things that's happening inside of a boom economy right now is that even many people um, who have good salaries and and work in the tech sector um, feel like they're just holding on in their own way. Um, I I think one of the things that's happening is that the real estate market, and you can hear this in stories in the book, is sort of constantly raising prices um, to eat at the margin um, whatever amount of sort of excess salary there is. uh, in people's lives. So if they, you know, if they feel like they had a sort of stable foothold, the rents keep rising. Yeah. I know many people who are young 30 something professionals who have two or three roommates. I know families, um, who are either putting their kids through public school or private school, families whose both parents work in the tech sector, but you know, their parents are both, um, commuting, spending long hours at the office, have to pay for childcare, any number of those things. It's just hard for them to be civically present in their city as a result. It's hard for them to be taking the time for volunteering or learning about the problems that are happening around them or finding ways to sort of invest and motivate for positive change. And I think that's part of what's being lost in this period where the, where the change is so rapid is there's, there isn't a moment for anyone to catch their breath and figure out how to quickly orient themselves to be the the change maker that's needed. I don't think, it, I, and I don't think it's possible for individuals to do that without some way to collaborate and find some sort of common ground and common movement together. So all these little individual efforts to do a little bit of good aren't adding up to enough right. to help um, give the platform for what I argue to be a sort of like dignified, stable life. The other part of it is that we are arguably in the middle of it, that this isn't an end point that we're talking about here, that this change is still happening. It is happening extremely rapidly, and we don't really know how it's all going to play out at this point. Yeah, that I mean, I think there's there's a lot of people who find solace in the sort of Sting, Stephen Pinker idea of um, uh, change is inevitable, the trend line is, is always up towards more justice, um, more peace, more human happiness. And uh, the, the, the graph may spike downwards at times. Um, human nature and human progress are, are inherently good. And I don't know that that argument is unpersuasive from a geological point of view. You know, you expand outward long enough and you're looking at large enough chunks of time, I'm sure we'll arrive at a place and confident given how many hopeful stories there are in this book that that the energy towards addressing um, what feel like incidental um, unintended injustices during this period of time will, will right itself. But how long will that take and what responsibility do we have during that period of time is sort of the question of the book. How can the private sector um, heal, the, heal its own wounds or heal the wounds it's causing out, out, outside of itself? Can the public sector develop enough resources and momentum to really become responsive to the needs of a larger constituency that it hasn't figured out broader solutions for. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that question of during this period of time, what are the 
cost to the people around us. Um, can we band together? Are there, are there, are there ideas and solutions here that we're just not surfacing because we're not listening broadly enough or connecting the right people together? I don't know that I have the answers for that. I'm not arrogant enough to pretend that I know this, but I certainly think the book is beginning to help us diversify in whatever corner of San Francisco and the Bay Area we find ourselves, our ability to imagine that there are other perspectives out there that we've yet to encounter. Of course, the other possibility is, and we've seen this again in other places at other times, is that all those that are coming here now that are doing the displacing, the displacers, that eventually they settle in, that they become, even though the jobs may be for shorter periods of time, that, that they become embedded in the community. And 50 years from now, they'll be complaining about the next group that's coming in. Yeah, I, on some level, that will always happen in any city. There will be new people that come and old people that leave. That, that, that turnover is part of living in a dynamic metropolis anywhere. The question is what identity does the city want to have and what um, amount of its culture does it want to preserve? And I, I don't um, think um, that we're going to be able to protect everything or preserve everything that's here. I don't think freezing the city in time is a useful um, exercise, nor do I think there's anybody in the book. Uh, I do think the question is what of the the powerful cultural forces that the Bay Area sort of built for itself, do we want to preserve for that period of time? And particularly for a city that became so identified around an argument about um, individual liberty, um, freedom of expression, um, personal empowerment, uh, and diversity and openness, are we okay with the fact that during this period of time, the map of the city is is unraveling that argument demographically. I don't think it's unraveling that argument intentionally, and I think this is the hardest thing for people. I think, you know, if you tour the Bay Area, 90% of the people and almost everybody in this book wants to continue to live in a place that is able to hold that story up as one of the primary attributes of where they live and, and how they identify with their community. But... Incidentally, you know, as a product of all of this change, um, this area, and particularly the city of San Francisco, is being whitewashed. And that, as a project, is just a very complicated um, byproduct when everybody feels like it's out of their control and therefore not their responsibility. Talk about how you see it in relationship to New York and how, how New York City went through a similar kind of gentrification. Yeah, I think New York, you know, I, you could tell the story in a lot of different cities in America, but I think New York is an interesting counterpoint right. in a few ways. Um, I don't think New York is, has um, emerged on the other side of this in a fully healthier way, but it had some differences in how it was structured that kept, um, that slowed the pace of change, I think. Um, one of which is that I, the, the five boroughs of New York, uh, unlike the nine counties of the Bay Area, those five boroughs are all in one metropolis. They all vote for the same government. They all are served by the same public servants. They're all taxed in the same bureaucracy. And so I think there's a way in which uh, questions around public budget and personal representation and people having a voice in the city um, as, as people have been sort of pushed out of Manhattan into further and further into the outer boroughs, 
they're not 100% lost from the conversation in the city, particularly the civic conversation. The other thing is that there's just a better mass transit system, and that's easier to build when it's one city. Um, people are able to continue to keep the same jobs, um, commute to the same communities, even if they've been pushed further out. I'm not going to suggest that that's a, a 100% easy change for people, but it's meant they don't have to endure the kind of two-hour commutes um, that many people have had in the Bay Area as they move from San Francisco to Antioch or Gilroy or Tracy or beyond. So I think some of those changes are, are, are more important than we recognize. Uh, some of the voices in the book really identify some of these structural economic problems that have resulted from people living in San Francisco but working in the peninsula and as a result, much of that tax revenue goes to Menlo Park and Palo Alto as opposed to, to San Francisco. Wow. Talk a little bit about the interviews you did, the comments you did, and this sense of the city, on the one hand, having so much money, being such a wealthy place, and the inequality that they see. Well, I think a lot of that is just a question of, it builds sort of off the back the, of the last answer. You know, mm-hmm. The money is finding itself in places. The money is finding itself in large tech companies, the funding, the money's finding itself in some of the wealthier suburbs. Um, the city government of San Francisco, though it's a very wealthy city, is just under-resourced for many of the problems that it needs to deal with. It, um, it's interesting to look at um, Mark Benioff's recent, recent decisions to invest in homelessness. Um, uh, it's very exciting to see somebody look at the scale of the problem and decide to attack it at a level that's probably closer to commensurate with what's necessary. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's difficult from a legitimacy question to be putting so much um, of our civic reinvestment questions on philanthropy. Um, the philanthropic sector was, was intended from a policy point of view to be a space of innovation and a space to be able to sort of experiment to the margins. And there was an expectation somewhat that the public sector would be able to sort of handle the sort of core driving um, civic needs and that philanthropy would be able to sort of innovate elsewhere in the system to be able to produce good ideas for the public sector to carry forward. I think we're seeing the opposite occur now, whether it's charter schools or whether it's homeless innov- uh, initiatives or whether it's frankly cleaning up the city, you're seeing um, a lot of emphasis being put on um, tech companies themselves, figuring out a way to sort of marshal 20% of their um, time and energy towards civic solutions. And I don't know that they're, that population is trained to do that um, can, and always can find the best solutions. I think they're great examples of civic investment from the tech sector, and I think that they should all be applauded. But it's important for us to understand that there's a difference between investing in expertise and um, philanthropically investing to innovate. There's also been a lot of pushback of late to the private sector, tech or whatever, getting so involved in public policy that it really lets the government off the hook in many respects. Exactly. And I think and I think it also robs the area of an ability to find consensus and common ground through legitimate mechanisms that have been democratically endorsed. I think, look, they're, they're, we're, we're not, that's, the book is all these sort of private little portraits. And one of the stories I find most compelling is of a young man who built a approximately 10-year career as a juvenile justice advocate. He's um, nationally recognized for his work, uh, celebrated by Governor Jerry Brown, celebrated by uh, 
Attorney General Eric Holder. Um, what he did in his career was push uh, juvenile justice advocates to better recognize the sort of range of issues that were affecting their clients. So these are kids who have been arrested, are in process, and his goal is to keep them out of prison and in their homes, back at school while they await trial, et cetera, et cetera, in the hopes that that will be more rehabilitative than prison would be. Now, a lot of that is because he was able to identify health factors, home factors, education factors that all led to um, success for these kids. One of a story he tells is of a young woman who just had a learning disability and that had been unrecognized at school, and so she wasn't able, you know, she was frustrated in her classes and wasn't attending. What happens to him is his daughter gets sick, and as a result of that, he can't afford to, to just live in San Francisco on his uh, nonprofit salary. Takes a second job. And his second job at night is to be a guard in prisons, juvenile prisons in California. And so at night, he's sort of undoing the work that he does during the day. And I think what we, his story is, I think, allegorical for something that we don't realize is happening around us. Somebody like him isn't anybody for the community. We've invested in him in ways we don't know, whether it's through philanthropy or whether it's through government subsidies or whether it's through any number of other areas that sort of make his work possible. We've also built expertise in him. He knows his community. He knows his kids. He knows San Francisco intimately and how these problems are particularly expressing themselves here. But he faces the choice of either leaving because of economic pressures or staying and undoing the work at night that he does during the day. And that paradox is, I think, more and more what we need to start considering around us. What are the externalities that aren't economic? What are the externalities that are personal? What, what, what are the kinds of goods that we don't know how to study for and track 100% yet, but are around this kind of expertise, intimacy, and familial connection? Another observation is from a uh, homelessness advocate, uh, Rob Gittin, who ran an organization that does youth outreach and walks the street every night. Um, to make sure it can bring goods and bring the homelessness services to the streets instead to catch the kids who aren't being picked up in normal programs. So what he sees is that over the course of 10 years, the, popula- the homeless youth population has shifted from white to black. And one of his suspicions of this is that as more and more black families have had to leave San Francisco, the safety net provided to these kids, whether it was aunts and uncles' homes or whether it was their own parents or grandparents, etc., are no longer there. And these kids are, as a result, on the streets, trying to stay in school, trying to keep a hold, a foothold in the city, but don't have the community around them that once was able to give them a place to stay. Barry McClelland, his book is Silicon City, San Francisco in the Long Shadow of the Valley. Carrie, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, it was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.